I cover all the blanks. All right. Okay. Um, I got lots of rabbit trails and places we can go, but what do you guys want to talk about? What what of what we covered is you got questions or thoughts on? Timothy. I figured I better take advantage of Scott being right here. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, just w when it talks about those uh, that are outside the fold that hear his voice that he'll gather in, right? Um, is that, are those people that have been ministered to, I mean, the, the non-Jewish people throughout the Old Testament and people who may have heard, you know, uh, about God and about all of the Christianity types of, or Judaism that was happening, or, it, or does that refer to like the, you know, the, the example of like, you know, the people on some island somewhere that have never heard the name of Christ, like, does it encompass anything like that? People who have, through natural revelation, come to understand who God might be. Um, is there any correlation there? I'm just curious. Who, who all is, is in mind when it's the people outside the flock? Well, I, I think not, not that it's this clear yet. Well, actually, it is this clear. Chapter 6 makes it this clear. There is a group of people the Father has given to his Son. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And we'll look at, if you guys want to turn to John 17, we'll look at that. But um, that group would consist of everyone, we, from our side, everyone who hears his voice and follows him. It would not include anyone who doesn't hear his voice or follow him. So, if there are, so for people on far-removed tribes and people on far-removed islands, for them to be his sheep, they must hear his voice and follow him. Um, so going through Romans 2, natural revelation is not enough to save anyone. It's enough to damn everyone because um, they'll know God exists. They know conscience. They know about judgment. They know about right and wrong. Um, but there's nobody apart from special revelation who is going to follow Jesus. Um, so Jesus says the rocks can cry out. Jesus can appear to Paul on the road to Damascus. So there are, it doesn't have to be through human preaching or through a written book, but that extra special information is necessary, I think is clear. Um, so there's nobody getting saved because they worship the God of nature. Um, so hold on, my mother's now calling me. Um, and uh, so in John's gospel, I think it's simply this antecedent group. So, so, in, so in John 17, it's more explicit. Um, let me get there. So six just gives us all that the Father gives me will come to me. So there's a gifting of people to Jesus. Jesus elaborates that in, in 17. Um, okay. Starting in verse six. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So at least here, Jesus is not praying for all men equally. He's praying for a subset of men, those whom the Father has given him. Um, let's keep going. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. So the, the nature of the prayer is this. You gave me these people, 
And I have kept them, and I have watched them, and I have overseen them, and I have guarded them, and I have revealed your words and yourself to them. But I'm going to the cross. So he's handing them back to his father for a time. You watch over them now while, while I am on the cross, and you care for them. So Jesus is, in, like, again, notice this. I mean, this is just marvelous. The shepherd's concern is for his sheep. He's about to be tortured to death. And his concern is, you gave me these people, and I've watched over them. I haven't lost any of them, except for one, and that the scriptures might be fulfilled. You're going to need to watch them for a time, because I'm going to be occupied. Um, and so he says, while I was with them, I kept, okay, but now, verse 13, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak to the world, that they, my joy may be fulfilled. Uh, no, sorry, I'm, I've jumped ahead. Sorry, verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my... That my I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Then I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And now he moves on to others. Now, in the book of Acts, I think the progression is there are people outside of Israel who are, the term seems to be used as God-fearers, people like Cornelius, people like the Ethiopian eunuch, and it seems like the priority as the gospel goes out is first the redeemed in Israel, then the redeemed outside of Israel, but by the middle of Acts, we're just straight up preaching to pagans, and they're getting converted. So it, would it include those outs, who are already reconciled, those who already know God? Like the, I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch is returning from worship in Jerusalem with an Isaiah scroll. I, I would assume here's a guy responding in faith to the Old Testament. I would not assume the Ethiopian eunuch's getting forgiven. Rather, the Ethiopian eunuch is already reconciled with God. The Ethiopian eunuch is coming to hear the good news that the Christ came. And he's identifying with Christ. Same thing with Cornelius. Cornelius' prayers have gone up as a memorial before God. He's pleasing God, antecedent to him hearing about Jesus. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the most, the most normal conclusion for me is these are Old Testament saints. These are God-fearing proselytes, and they need to hear about the coming of the Messiah. But certainly, so it would include that, but it wouldn't be limited by that, because we're all of God's sheep, all of God's children, all of those that have been given to the Son um, need to come to faith. So, yes, but far more than what you're saying, if that makes any sense. Does that answer your question? All right. Okay. Caleb. <sighs> okay. So, um, my wife grew up hearing, uh, uh, well, speaking a creed in the Reformed Presbyterian Church that says that... Uh, Christ descended into hell. Um, what are your thoughts on did Christ descend into hell um, after his death? Or It looks like he did from 1 Peter. The passage, that part of the creed, there's variations on the Apostles' Creed, um, and one of the variations says he descended into hell. So let's go to 1 Peter. Um, 
I'm going to deal with this in like three minutes because it's slightly off topic. We can talk more, but I will give three minutes to it. But if you guys have a lot more questions about Jesus descending into hell, catch, catch me outside after this. How about that? Um, that? I didn't do that right, did I? I didn't do that. Jeremy knows what I'm talking about. I know, right? Okay. Come on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There you go. Okay. Like five people that think that's funny. That's awesome. Okay. Um, so first Peter. Um, here we go. Um, you died to bring us to God. Where is that? Is it five? Um, no, it's four. It's three. Okay. There it is. Um, yeah. 318. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Pause. John Piper's got a really, I think, excellent book called God is the Gospel, where even today when I was saying the death isn't the end, it's a means to the end. He dies that he might rise. Ultimately, Jesus goes to the cross, not just so that you can be forgiven. That's an insufficient goal. You being forgiven is a necessary prerequisite for him bringing you to God. If If he were to bring you and me to God without being forgiven, we'd be consumed. So the goal, the end goal, is to bring us to God. You get God. A necessary prerequisite of that is you need to be forgiven. You need to be purified. But being purified isn't the end in of itself. The end in of itself is to bring... Anyway, it's basically a book unpacking the implications of Christ died for sins that he might bring you to God. Um, there's, there's an advertisement. Um, being put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Anyway, so he goes to a prison to make a proclamation to, to spirits in, in, in um, chains. If you compare this with um, Jude and Second Peter, my, my understanding is Jesus goes to um, the, not the lake of fire, because no one's in the lake of fire yet. And according to Revelation, hell gets, death and Hades get emptied into the lake of fire. So there's a place of torment, which is not the final resting place of the damned, that uh, is, has occupants currently. Jesus goes there not to suffer. It's finished on the cross. Even the language of estrangement is removed. So partway through the crucifixion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the end, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Whatever, Whatever's going on there, whatever, whatever is whatever alienation, whatever uh, distance there is in the relationship is resolved. Jesus is not, does not go to hell to atone for sin. My guess is, and, and the word here to proclaim is not the, uh, it's not the word gospelize, um, preach good news. It's just keruso, to, to make a proclamation. If I had to guess what the contents of that proclamation is, it's purely my guess, so you, know, you can ignore it, um, is I win. No, I, I, think, I think it's not fitting for the resurrected Christ, who's been given a name above every name by which every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow, that any of his enemies live in the hopes that perhaps they might have won. So there are, I believe, there are demons who've been sent to a place of judgment ahead of time. That's what the, uh, the demons cry out to Jesus in the Gospels. Have you come here to send us to the place of judgment before the time? I think there's a antecedent for that. I think it's demons who sinned in the days of Noah. I think it's the reference there. So there's a cadre of demons who are already bound in chains. And I, my guess would be Jesus went to them to proclaim his victory. Lest they're, it, it is not acceptable that they're in punishment hoping maybe our side wins. I win. You lose. Um, that'd be my, that's my guess. 
Um, but no, he didn't. So I, I think Peter, he went to a place of punishment where spirits are in chains. That sounds like hell or Hades or whatever. And as long as we don't say, as long as someone's not saying he went there as part of the atonement, as part of his sufferings, no, he went there as the Lord of hell. He went there as the glorified son of man, as the one with the keys, not as someone in chains himself. So as long as it's that, yeah, I think that's orthodox and good and sound. I think there are some, I think there may even be one or two confessions that imply or state plainly he's going there to suffer. I would, I would vigorously deny that. The atoning work is finished when he says it's finished. Is that, anyway, we can talk more about that later, but that's, that's as much time as we can deal with it now. Any other questions um, from this morning on things? Pertaining to sermon. Oh, you got one more. Okay. okay. All right. One more. Hey, last okay. one. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, can you take the baby for a second? Thank you. Uh, yes, she can. There you go. There's your answer. Thank you. Thank you. That was your question. Uh, I answered it. Last one. Yeah, sorry. I have one more question for you that was directed okay, towards okay, Maggie. Right, yeah. yeah. So I think it's in 1020, but I lost my notes. Um, when uh, when it's talking about the unity of Jesus and the Father yeah. and talking about how God loves Jesus by revealing all that he is and yeah. has done, um, how does that not then go into him revealing the day that he will return because only the Father knows? Sure. Um, so, so mostly of how we describe. So, back up. If Jesus, let me make it even simpler. If Jesus is God, and one of the attributes of God is knowing all, how can Jesus be God and not know something? How does how can how can he say I don't know the day they are? And the only other alternative is he does and he's lying, and then he's not God because he's not holy. So how how do you deal with that? Um, and that's a whole category of things Jesus does and says. The Bible says God doesn't do. Does God sleep? Do the Psalms reveal God ever sleeps? He who watches over you does not grow weary or sleep. Did Jesus grow weary and sleep? Yes, he did. Um, so Jesus doesn't know who touched him when the woman with the flow of blood touches him. Jesus doesn't know um, the day or the hour of his return. Jesus is surprised by things. He's clearly surprised by the fig tree and by the centurion's faith. He marveled at the at the faith of the centurion. Whoa, it was unexpected. I mean, plain reading the text, Jesus can, can be surprised. Uh, he, can, he can marvel at things. And so I think how that is, I'm less clear. I gotta, maybe it's like this. What we gotta guard against is, um, so it's more, here's how not to say it. Um, the Philippians 2, I read it earlier, speaks of Jesus emptying himself. Um, therefore, have... have I got it on the text, so I might as well read it since I got it here. Um, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So tied up in whatever that means, emptying himself, I think is how Jesus cannot know things. So I like to say this, although this is, I think, an orthodox guess, but you're trying to draw a circle around heresy. Let's not say there's a mystery here. Right? How does the finite enter the, the infinite enter the finite? I'd say something like Jesus voluntarily does not make use of certain divine attributes during the incarnation. I want to say voluntarily doesn't make use of because I don't want to say he lost them. If Jesus lost them during the time of not possessing them, he's not God. If part of the definition of who God is is someone who knows all and Jesus doesn't know all, 
even if it's just for the 33 years of the incarnation, then for those 33 years, he's not God. But the, the analogy I use, pure analogy, is you could have the most souped-up, blinged-out version of Mercedes' car, and if you could imagine a switch that turned all of the blinged-up features off, the power steering turned off, the AC turned off, the power windows turned off, you could flip that switch and then experience what it's like to drive as a mere mortal, not with your super-deluxe car. And yet, the entire while, it was the super-deluxe version. So if Jesus' purpose is to be the second Adam, and he chooses, it looks like he chooses to not have any cheat codes, not to have any advantages the first Adam didn't have, he can do so without getting rid of, he can just not utilize his, his, those divine attributes that Adam didn't have. So something like that. Now, the how, I don't know. Um, but something like that has to be right, and I think that guards against heresy. Um, so, so no, but, but I don't think it's theater. There are some people like, no, he knows. Okay, then he's, he's deceiving us. Then, then he's being disingenuous. Uh, and more to the point, in, in, um, in, if you go to Luke 2, Luke clearly, and, and if you think that, if you think Jesus is just pretending, then you're, and there is a stream of medieval theology that goes here, you're going to end up with Jesus coming out of the womb knowing how to talk. There, there, you can look it up. There are, like, there are medieval paintings of Jesus teaching, holding a discourse without the umbilical cord cut. Like his mother's holding him, Mary's holding him, there's a halo on his head, and Jesus is holding court, preaching a sermon, because he, either he comes into this world fully, functioningly omniscient, omnipotent, everything, or he's a baby learning, and he had to learn how to walk, and he had to learn how to talk. And, and Luke, I think, clearly presents him. Let me, let's get there, Luke 2. Um, so I've, I've, one of the things I've done in John is I've highlighted the bookends. Um, the, the literary name is Inclusio. And an author will block off a section by saying similar things at the beginning and the end. There's, there's two Inclusios in Luke 2, I'll show you. And part of what the point of the inclusion is is to mark off a literary unit. The other part is to highlight central theme. What's the point? What am I supposed to be looking at? When you're, when you're looking at a text, like what does the author want me to focus on, those bookends function to help do that. So the first bookend we get in Luke 2 is um, here, um, 22. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem. So Jesus' parents keep the law perfectly in bringing Jesus up to Jerusalem. Then look at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, so the whole section of Jesus being brought up and them giving the redemption price for him, which is really interesting, they redeemed the Redeemer. Um, the bookend to show us that's a unit in 22 and in 39 is his parents did everything according to the law. That's, that's your chunk. So Luke's giving us a unit. Well, the next very next unit is 40 and 52. And what does it say? In 40, the child grew strong, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor of God was upon him in 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased in wisdom, which is another way of saying he learned. And it's said twice. And what does he do in that text? He's in the temple asking questions. He's learning. In other words, it, it, it just seems so Luke's clear intent. He wants us to see Jesus studying and learning. Jesus is so intent to learn, he stays behind for three days, because, presumably because he gets access to some of the best scholarly minds, the best students of the Torah in the temple. And what's he doing? I mean, because some people have read this, he's teaching them, he's fixing their wagon. That's not the way the text reads. 
Um, so jump down to, okay, uh, okay, 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting, which is what students do, among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It doesn't say Jesus was lecturing and teaching. No, he's interacting with them, and he is amazing them with his learning and his understanding, but he's sitting and he's asking questions, and apparently he's given some answers. And Luke frames this with the boy grew in wisdom and stature. This is Jesus learning. And, and, and when I taught through Luke, my point I wanted to make was, therefore later, say in chapter 4, when the devil is tempting him and Jesus is quoting Scripture, when Jesus is seen to be the master of Scripture later on Luke, when he confounds the Sadducees and the Pharisees, when he silences them, when he says, have you not read, when he says to them, if uh, the Lord said to my Lord, how is he David's Lord if he's David's son? This, this man who has mastered the Torah... We're not to credit it primarily because, oh, he's God. We're to credit it because he studied and studied and studied. We're to see the boy who spent three days and nights studying the Bible here, it pays off here, when at a moment's notice he can quote the scripture to the devil. That, that's what Luke is showing us. He's giving us the, the basis. Here's why, later in the book, this man has mastered the scripture. So with all that being said, Jesus learned I have to conclude that. Okay, then, then he learned, and he wasn't, didn't stop being God. So something like he... This is, I've got a technical way of saying this. He voluntarily didn't make use of some of his divine attributes. I'm just guarding against... It's not like he stopped knowing things. He just didn't make use of it, didn't utilize it. Yes, sir? Does that apply to the glorified Jesus as well? No. Knows when he's coming back. Yes. Yes. Um, the, the Jesus who's been given the name above every name, he knows, he knows precisely when he's coming back. Yes. All those limitations are removed. And he looks very different, doesn't he, when he shows up in Revelation. You know, I mean, and people are falling down at his feet as if dead. You know, no one, they weren't really doing that in his humbled state, except, at the end, except in John 17 or 18 when they come to arrest him, right? Um, so, so, no, no, those limitations are taken off. Yes. Um, they certainly appear to be. I mean, it's a deduction, but we know why he limited himself for the incarnation. We know he's hungry for his glory in John 17, so I would assume he has the full amount of his glory back. That's what he's on his mind in John 17. So, yeah, I would say it's a sure bet that none of those limitations are active, even though I don't have a text that explicitly says that. Um, yeah. Okay. Questions, thoughts, anything? Oh, Jeremy. You were just reading to us in John 17, verse 9, about how Jesus is not praying for the world. Yeah. Is world in 17, 9 the same world as God's love the world in 3? Sure. Yes. Because, well, I'll just let you answer. But a couple of things. Just because Jesus doesn't pray for the world there, I would not conclude Jesus never prays for the world. In this prayer, that's not who he's praying for. Um, the, the word world, though, in John's gospel is clearly used in a number of ways. For instance, turn to chapter 21. Um, in John 21, 25. Now, they, there also are many other things that Jesus did 
were any, every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And here, it's all the same word, cosmos. Um, the, the, uh, the world is viewed as a large place. That's how, how many books, so many books, the world wouldn't be big enough. That's not the view of the world in John 3.16. In John 3.16, as made clear by 19 to 21, it's not the world's a very big place, it's the world's a very bad place. It's, this is the judgment, light has come into the world. I'll quote 19, which is right after 16. This is the judgment, light has come into the world, men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. The world is a very, very dark, dark-loving place. So the emphasis in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, might be something like, for God so loved his enemies, for God so loved um, evil darkness-loving man. So it's not, it's not, in John 3.16, I don't think the emphasis is on the breadth. Not just some people, but every people, but rather not the wicked people, the darkness-loving people. That's who God loved. But she doesn't necessarily have to then demand anything. Like, that. that's the focus of world there. Um, as opposed to each and every last person whether or not that's true, you could argue from the text. I wouldn't argue from John 3.16. In John 3.16, because you get the summary statement in 19, I'm taking, this is the judgment, this is the summary of the matter, this is the conclusion of what I've just said. And the emphasis is clearly on, light came into the world and the men hated it, they loved the darkness. That's the focus of, because the Greek would literally be, in this way God loved. In this, in this manner God loved the world that he gave his son. That's, that's how God demonstrated his love to the world. The world's this dark place, and yet God demonstrates his love by giving his son to that world. Um, so I do think you could argue from other texts. That, okay, let's back up. I'm going to make a plug. I'll try to find it and post it on Facebook. D.A. Carson has a very helpful talk called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Um, I will try to find it and post it on Facebook. He's got a little book, little devotional book you can read. The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And what he means, if I, I'm basically just, if you listen to it, you're, I'm going to poorly rip it off, so I t- I'll give him all the credit and I'll take all the blame for what I'm about to say. But Carson's point is there are at least four or five ways the Bible speaks of God loving people and things. Not as though God has five different loves and he pulls out love A and love B and love C. But there are different ways, and we get this. I love coffee, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love you, Jeremy, and I love Christians all over the world. And I mean something a little different with each one of those statements, right? Um, And so you can speak of God loving the created order, and we see it in the birds crying out to him, and not a sparrow falls apart from his will. And he, he loves, it pleases him. He loves the stars and he loves, he loves, right? I mean, so this is Jesus. You are much more valuable than flowers. Don't be worried or you have little faith. So does God love birds and rabbits and animals and trees and stars and spiders? Yeah, sure. I can speak of it in that sense. Sure, I can. He cares for them and he provides for them and they please him and they reflect his glory and they, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Does God love each and every person? I think so. And I got text. He makes this rain fall upon the just and the unjust. God acts in loving ways to unbelievers and people who will ultimately occupy hell. So yes, I can show you his love towards them, right? You got Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. You've got God through the prophets speaking of his grief, and there's a level of anguish over those who will not listen. Did he form the ear and not hear? Does he form the eye and not see? Why will you not listen? Why will you not turn and be healed, right? Um, 
And does God love his son? And one of the things I've been emphasizing this morning is God's love for his son is distinct from his love for us precisely because his love for his son is responding to something in his son, right? I mean, because the son is like this, the father loves him. That's not the way he loves us. He loves us in spite of who we are. Because of who he is, he loves us. He makes us lovely. He doesn't leave us that way. But it's, it's no good thing in me, Paul, right? Um, and he loves his, his sheep and his elect and his people in a distinct way as well. And, and Carson's point in all of this is to say, we need to not totalize any one or two of those. Because if you do, if you make, this is what it means for God to love, and take any of those four or five examples I gave you. Creation, mankind in general, um, the, the elect. Oh, there's a fifth one, God's experiential love. So Jude can say, little children, keep yourself in the love of God, which clearly implies you might not. So there's a, a love of God that can wax and wane. What is that talking about? I think it's talking about his pleasure, right? So does this make sense? My children, in one sense, I'm committed to their well-being and safety, and I love them equally, and my love doesn't wax or wane. My pleasure in any given one at any given time absolutely waxes. This child's being a delight. This child's being a handful. This child is, is pleasant and a joy. The Proverbs, right? A foolish son is, is, is a curse for his father. He sires a fool does so to his shame, right? There are children who shame their parents, no doubt, right? So... I, I would take the love of God would be something like 1 John 1. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. So, so when I say, can God love me more or less? Depends what you mean. Can God, is God ever more or less committed to the final glorification and salvation of his children? No. It's fixed, it's wavering, it's unwavering, and it never moves. Does God have more or less pleasure in his children as they act faithfully and unfaithfully? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can God be more pleased with you today than he was yesterday? Absolutely. Now, he loves you in the sense he's not going to let you slip through his hands. He's not going to give up on you. He's going to get you to glory. But absolutely, as a father, there are, there are times when he's well-pleased and there are times when he disciplines, right? And so, okay, so you take any of those five loves. Carson breaks it into five. Creation, all of mankind, the elect, the son, and um, waxing and waning, relational love. If you take any one of those and you make that love, you're going to have problems. So you take the last one, the wax, the relational one. If that's all you mean by love, you will end up with works righteousness. You will end up wondering if you've been good enough today for God to love you. If you don't have that, if all you take is his, he never loves you more or less, you end up with lawlessness and antinomianism because after all, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. So it doesn't matter if you cheat on your wife. It doesn't matter because nothing you can do can make him love you more or less. If, you just, if that's all you think love means, you're going to have problems. If you just think it's the created order, you're going to end up with like salvation by environmentalism. And yes, we should be steward, like none of these should be let go of and none of these should be totalized. Because God loves his created order, we should. Because God cares for it, we should. But if that's your only meaning of love, now if all you focus on is God's love for his elect, God's love here, then you're going to basically end up with the God of hyper-Calvinism who loves the elect and hates everyone else. And if all you get are those passages of God loving all people, then you're going to end up with the uh, sort of like sissified Jesus who's just in heaven now weeping because why won't they listen? Why won't they listen? You know, you can, you can go into that caricature. You don't, don't make me, you know, 
as what we see here in John 17 is not that. They're, so they're, Jesus can weep over those who reject him, and Jesus can say, I'm not praying for them. Right? So we don't want to let go of any of them. So a lot of this is keeping these things in tension and keeping these things in proportion and balance. And, and, I th- and I'll post it because Car- that's very helpful. Carson's basically identifying them and saying the danger is to, to, to hold on to one that you really like. I really love God's love for his sheep. And then let go of God's love for everybody. Okay, you're going to get arrogant. You're going to become cruel. You're going to become unfeeling. Okay, I just want to have God's love for everyone. And I get uncomfortable with his love for his children. And that's going to be, all of them are going to breed problems if all you do is hold on to one of them. That's a long-winded answer. Does that help at all, Jeremy, or am I getting it? I'll, I'll, I'll find it. It's a lecture, and it's a mini devotional book, very readable devotional book, because the book's based off the lecture. It's not an academic work. And I commend it to you. Very helpful. And when you listen to it, you'll be like, Dan, Jeremy did a poor job of totally ripping him off, but that's okay. Um, okay. Questions, further questions on that stuff. Um, I want to go a step further. What I'm getting at with talking about why it's important to emphasize he doesn't love us because of, of what's in us is um, the, the Christian church is always about seven or eight years behind whatever's big in the culture. And so uh, in typical fashion, about seven or eight years after the culture got obsessed with low self-esteem, Christian church in certain quarters did as well. And I've heard, I will spare the guilty just because... People who should know better and people who in many other areas have done better have said things like this. You're no piece of trash. Jesus wouldn't die for trash. You've got inestimable worth. And I don't think they mean this. I really hope they don't mean this. But the innocent, let me take that to its logical conclusions. You're suggesting that God looked at his son and the pleasure he had in fellowship with his son, and he looked at you and me, and he, he doesn't die for trash. There's a value here. And in the scales of his son and us, we want out. And so the cross is not meritless grace and mercy. It's a shrewd investment. God, God's walking through the pawn shop, and he sees something that has way more value than anyone else sees. And so he trades his son for us. And the cross then doesn't become about his love. It becomes about our worth. Look how valuable you were. Look how much he paid for the privilege of you and me. That's horrendous. Now, the, the people who say such things don't go there, but they set the trajectory that gets you there. They say that, and like, I, I know what the implications of that statement is. If you're trying to make someone feel better by saying, you're so valuable that God sent his son, why can't... And, and the problem is, it's rooted in self-esteem. It's, I don't want to be loved unless I'm told I'm lovely. I want to be praised. The Bible says God loves you. He loves you because of who he is. And we say, I want to be loved because of who I am. I want to be affirmed. I, don't, I want to be told I have limitless potential. I want to be told I'm valuable. I want to be told I'm wise. I want to be told... We live in a culture obsessed with affirming. Look at what type of canceling will happen to you if you don't affirm certain decisions of certain people. No, rejoice that you are loved and be willing to accept that that's not making much of you. It's making much of him. Now, he makes us lovely, and we will be heirs of grace, and we will rule the world with Christ, and we will judge angels, and we will inherit all creation. And it's not because we deserve it. And, and, we, and we need to let go of the desire to be like, no, no, I wanna, I'm worth it, and I'm good enough, and I'm smart. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You're not. Um, 
so I think some well-meaning people trying to make people feel better said some terrible things, and that'd be one of them. Um, and if I told you the name of who I'm referencing, you'd be surprised. Because in many other areas, they're quite sound and orthodox, but that was, that was a very popular trend. Um, so that's what I'm trying to deal with. Questions on Yes. How do we handle that when we're talking about our children? Like not being like, oh, you're an awful little person that only thinks about themselves. How do you still... (laughs) Yes, I know. But how do you like not make them feel like nothingness Mm. and still like preach that they are a a creation of God, you know, and like... Well, I, I would say that in the first instance, we love our children not because of who they are, but because of whose image they bear and because it's the nature of a parent to love the child. The, whatever comes out of the womb isn't particularly wise, good-looking, clever. I mean, it, it, when they come out, there's none of those. They may be latently present. I'm, I'm your father. You're his mother. You bear God's image, and we love you. And it's not a declaration of the value of the child. That the child is valuable to me, we, that we are valuable to God, I'm not arguing. So, so th- I think that's the point. Just because you don't have you don't have a huge amount of intrinsic value intrinsically, it doesn't mean you can't be valuable to someone. We are valuable to God. He says we're like the apple of His eye. Whoever touches you is like someone poking God in the eye. You read the the Bible. God is jealous for His people. Jesus, when we get to the next section, I will not let you slip out of my hands. So, I would say you are valuable to me. We are valuable to God. Um, and we bear his image, and so there is a borrowed value and dignity. I mean, it's remarkable. Why is it wrong for me to kill people? It's not wrong because those really nice people, it's wrong because they bear, how dare you dishonor God's image? I mean, that's the, that's the reason why murder is wrong. The argument isn't fundamentally, that, I mean, the argument can be made separately, but the primary argument, the first order argument is, would you so disrespect and dishonor someone who looks somewhat like your God? Now, Nathan, when he comes to David, can talk about the, uh, the, the, the guy who had one sheep and was taken from him and killed and slaughtered, and he's talking about, the, uh, um, talking about taking the wife of Uriah, and there the, the implication is on, how do you think that helped Uriah feel? You took his wife and then you killed him. So it's not to say there isn't also these, this, this faithful, this is one of your mighty men, this is one of your faithful warriors, this, I mean, the betrayal of Uriah. Uriah the what? How do Hittites work for, for Israelite kings? They convert. Here's a convert to, to, to Judaism, and he's your faithful servant, and you're the Davidic king who's representing God on earth. You're God's son, Psalm 2 says, today I've begotten you, when David's enthroned. What does the Davidic king do to this convert to Judaism, he kills him and steals his wife. The betrayal is just immense. Um, And yet David can say against you and only you have I sinned. Now, Nathan in his parable can highlight the horizontal wrong to to Uriah, but the first order issue is, (laughs) how have you so despised the Lord, right? So we, we do have a, everyone has a borrowed real dignity from God. And then we, we, even though nothing good in me dwells, we can be beloved. 
And then Second Corinthians, right? We can have gifts from God, but even the good things that I might enjoy in, in my kids or in someone else, what do you have, Paul says, that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if it's yours? So even if I can say, well, I, I, I'm somewhat gifted in teaching or I'm gifted, whatever, it, it still can't be like, yay me, right? Um, so even, even where we recognize giftedness and good things in people, God says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I did that. And so we get the blessing and he gets the glory. We got to watch out for the temptation, but, but I want the glory. And, and that's what we don't get to have. Is that so? We can so to the, to the person with like the low self-esteem, you are beloved. Your, your mother and father, we 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 cherish you. You please us. You delight us. We we delight in your prosperity and your growth. And for the kid, it's like, yeah, I don't care about that. I want to be told I'm like that. Sh- that with those other things, that should be sufficient. Is it not enough that your mother and father adore you and delight in you, and you satisfy and please us, and we are zealously concerned for you? Now, that doesn't interest me. I want you to tell me that I deserve that, that I'm worthy of that, that it's right of you to feel that way. Knock that kid down, you know? Like, so, that, that, so don't hear more than what I'm saying when I say there's nothing. Like, we, God, we have become precious to him. Absolutely we have. But it's not because we're precious. <laughs> he, and he is committed to making us precious. So even now as we have his spirit and we are being sanctified into his image, we can take on some of that intrinsic value. Um, but all of our value initially is extrinsic. It's from outside, his image on us, his spirit in us, his calling of us. Does that help at all? Okay, okay, cool. We are, we are at time. Oh, wow, okay. Um, I'll stick around for a few more minutes, but uh, God bless, Godspeed, good day, and may your team score more goal units than the other team. <laughs> May they throunce them in the skirmish. It is my boat. I don't know who's playing. The Chiefs and somebody. I don't know who. Football. So do they do a lot of kicking in football? Okay. Sorry.